The Word of God comes to us from the 21st chapter of the book of Acts as we continue working our way through uh, this book, which we uh, kind of now can see the, the end sort of up on the horizon there somewhere. Uh, we come to chapter 21, the first 16 verses. And you know sort of the background. Uh, this is the third missionary journey. It's called the third missionary journey of, of Paul. And uh, he has been in Ephesus in chapter 19 and uh, was, was there in, in, in Ephesus for three years and some. And uh, then went up uh, uh, from there into uh, Macedonia and from Macedonia to Achaia, uh, all of which is present day Greece. And uh, uh, now he's working his way back, headed towards Jerusalem, and that's what we'll be talking about. Uh, he's uh, on his way in uh, chapter 20. He stopped in uh, Mycia and uh, called the uh, elders of the church in Ephesus to him and gave his going away speech. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And now they are setting forth from there on their way. Uh, did I say Mycia? It was Miletus. But uh, he's on his way now. Uh, to Jerusalem, sure enough, on that 400-mile sail from Miletus uh, to Troas, and then the bouncing along the coast uh, to and then overland to uh, Jerusalem. So, verse 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, the elders of, of Ephesus, and set sail, we came by a straight course to uh, to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes. And from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on aboard the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. 
After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of the nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have this word from you, a word of, uh, of teaching, a word uh, for our instruction, but Lord, for our spiritual growth, a word, Lord, for our lives, and we pray that by your Spirit you will open it to us and apply it to us, Lord, not only to our intellect, but to our heart, that is our very center of our emotional being, and to our wills, all to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. When I was a young man, uh, pretty young man, uh, six, I guess, uh, not sure of the age, five, six years old, uh, growing up in the 40s in New Orleans, uh, I would go on occasion to the grocery store once a week at least to buy a bottle of milk or some way it came in. And horrible uh, for the store, and I'd go two and a half blocks to uh, Mrs. Wilkins' corner grocery store. And that was no big deal back then for a six-year-old, a five-year-old, whatever. And uh, it was a different world. And I would uh, tell Mrs. Wilkins what I wanted, and she would hand me the milk or the bread or whatever it was. I would hand her the money give it And she would take it, and she'd put the stuff in the bag, as a waiter, and she'd open a jar there on the cover and, and, and say, here's a little something for you. And she'd take out a little sink or, you know, Kit Kat, I don't know, whatever the, whatever the candies would call it then. And she'd give me a little penny candy or whatever it was, a stick of Fleer's gum, or on a, on a good day, a Jack's cookie or, or a Fleer's double bubble gum. But uh, that was only when I came and spent a lot of money. But uh, at other times, as I got a little bit bigger, I had adventures all over the world, and I would go up by four and a half blocks to go into Solomon's, pick up prescriptions, or if we were for a special occasion, this only occurred maybe twice a year, we would have actually have a coming in our house, in the four walls of our house. And I would be charged to go into something, and I didn't know what it was looking for, she sent me to. Give her six bottles of empties that I had in the last and he would give me back full six I would give him the quarter and the penny that the coach cost, it was a full 26 cents. And, uh, and Mr. Godet said, Wait a minute. Now, Mr. Godet was French through and through and through. He just couldn't help it, he was. And I had a little black mustache that he waxed and black hair. He said, Now, wait a minute, Woody. Take your money up. And, and he'd do the same thing as Wilkins did. And I'd take whatever it was, but he'd hold the jar down there and let you take a piece of whatever you want. And I would make it be all my way. All that to say that this morning, I have a little something extra for you. A little land for you. 
this morning. Did you notice when I was reading, I, did, did you pick up on, on three words that really aren't, we're not going to say anything more about these, they're not really part of the sermon, but they're part of the text. The words say, save, and lodge are used five times in those 16 verses. And I think there's, and this is right now, but I think they say something to you and to me about our Christian fellowship and hospitality. They stayed here. They stayed there. They lodged here. Now, if you go back far enough into chapter 19, you understand there's a minimum of nine men in this group. And some commentators say, well, they picked up a few more. There may have been as many as 15. But they were, we know, nine. I can name them. And they stayed at these places and someday for a number of days. It's not just an overnight stay. For a number of days, and they had to be clothed and uh, fed and housed. Clothes, I imagine, washed. Maybe they had washing machines back then. Whatever, you know, hospitality meant. And... And as I thought about that, I got to thinking how much that must have meant to Paul and to his companions. I mean, travel wasn't quite like it was in his day. Uh, we get in our air conditioned cars and you know, we drive off. We drive I remember when we didn't have a car. And then I, it was quite a little bit before we had the airs. We didn't have a house. We should never have a different. And, and, and how much that must have meant to the traveler, to have a house open to them, to have hearts open to them. And I say that simply to address your fellowship and your hospitality. I say that while mode of travel is different and, and all of that, hospitality and fellowship are still necessary ingredients of the Christian life of the life and well-being of the church. When you were visiting during our greeting time, did you hear Jesse playing together? start singing and somewhere in the second stanza though you're getting much better somewhere in the second stanza most everybody was pretty close to being near their seats and I'm telling Barry I wouldn't change that for all the teenage children what a beautiful thing just open yourself and be ourselves and that's part of the horizontal aspect of our worship And something we all too often take for granted. Now I've talked more than I intended to. That's the line yeah. Now the sermon. Okay. So we're looking at the first 16 verses of chapter 21. You want to sum it up, you sum it up in a sentence, a simple sentence of 15 words or less. Paul pressed on to Jerusalem despite continued warnings of trials awaiting him there. This is a story of Paul doggedly moving on towards 
Jerusalem. Despite what the Holy Spirit was saying would happen there. And that leads to Sermon 1. Was Paul right? Or was Paul wrong? There are a number of people who said he was wrong. Uh, you know, he shouldn't have been doing that. So James Montgomery Boyce, for instance, in his exposition of the book of Acts, when he gets to this section, he names this section, When a Good Man Falls. I mean, the thought is that Paul here is resisting the Holy Spirit. He is going against God's will. I mean, look at verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And then they get almost to Jerusalem. They're up at Caesarea. And Agabus, this prophet, comes. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, Luke now includes himself. Earlier he was saying they were trying to dissuade Paul from going. Now he says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. The members of his own traveling party have joined the others in saying, Paul, don't go. Even Luke now is begging him not to go. Well, with the weight of those voices, he must not be doing something right. It, it must be wrong, they say. But the majority of people who study this particular passage say, no, Paul was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. He was doing God's will. John Stott, for instance, points out that there's a difference between a prediction and a prohibition. The Holy Spirit was predicting precisely what would take place in Jerusalem. It's a prediction. There's not a word from the Holy Spirit about not going to Jerusalem. The Spirit wasn't prohibiting. It was the people responding to what the Spirit was saying. The people responding to what he was saying. Remember this whole thing began back in chapter 19 when Paul was yet in Ephesus. It's funny. He said, now after these events, all of the stuff that went on in, in, in Ephesus, Paul resolved in the Spirit capital S, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Paul was here, Jerusalem was here, Macedonia and Achaia up here. So he's going to go up there, over here, and then apparently take a straight ship uh, uh, trip, a sea trip by ship, down to back to the area of Caesarea and then he'd go down to Jerusalem. I began in the 21st verse of chapter 19, and in chapter 20, uh, you, you get this. And now Paul says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, 
not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. And so when we get back to chapter 21, verse 13, Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And I read that and I said, now how in the world could Paul, could Paul say those things and mean them? I'm ready to go, go to prison, die, whatever, for the name of Jesus. Which brings us to Roman numeral two. Paul said and meant those things because he had the mind of Christ. Remember what he wrote to the Philippians last week in December, I think I preached from Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul could write that to the Philippians about the mind of Christ because he had that mind of Christ. Listen to the mind of Jesus. Not in Paul's words, but the words of Jesus himself. Matthew 16, we talked about that two weeks ago, we just bumped on this verse. But remember, the disciples, Peter being the mouthpiece, had identified who Jesus was. It's the peak, if you will, if if you're diagramming Matthew, you go up like this. And Peter says, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. And that's it. And then you read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it's from there, it just goes to Jerusalem and to the cross and to the tomb. And fortunately, to the resurrection. That's Matthew 16. Luke 9, Jesus speaking. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 13. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following it, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Luke 17. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke 22, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Luke 24, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then there's John 3.14. Everybody in this room, I suspect, 
or 99% of the people in this room know what John 3.16 says. How many of you remember what John 14 says? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The words of Jesus. Why? How could this be? It was the divine imperative. That little word that changes everything. Must. It's only four letters in English. It's smaller than that in Greek. It's three. It is the will of is the will of God. He must. Isaiah wrote in the 53rd chapter, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And again, to say why? Why on this green earth would the Father want to crush him, the son, to put his son to grief. Most important question you ever ask, maybe. For you, for you, that's the answer. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the serpent be lifted up the so that everyone who believes in him shall have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. Isaiah well, all that to say, Paul had the mind of Jesus, who humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. Now be sure you get this. Paul Only Jesus died a redemptive death. The mindset of Paul was the mindset of Jesus, which was the mind of the Father. The Spirit, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well meaning people, well meaning people who loved Jesus 
and who loved Paul tried to dissuade them both, did they not? Right there in Matthew 16, Jesus started teaching. So the man must go to Jerusalem, die, be buried, be raised. What's the next thing he said? Peter says, not you, Lord, certainly not you, Lord, never. Paul's friends loved him, were concerned for him. They were equally well-meaning with Peter, but they were equally wrong-headed. The Spirit was simply confirming Paul's call. Do you remember his conversion story? Acts chapter 9, Paul saw then was on his way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, up to Damascus, to bring back the Christians there, so they could be punished, so they could be stoned. led blind into Damascus. How And he's left to sit there and stew in his juices. And then the word of Jesus comes to a believer there, Ananias. Ananias, go. Speak to this man, Paul. Ananias says, do you know who that is and what he's here to do? And he says, of course I do. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Listen. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Same divine imperative. He must. It's every bit as much the Father's will as was Jesus' strike to Jerusalem. And it's interesting. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He would never have had audience with the kings if he hadn't gone to Jerusalem. He was bringing the word to the Gentiles. He was bringing it to, to the nation Israel. He never would have met before the Sanhedrin. He never would have testified there in the temple. He never would have met Festus. He never would have gone into the Lutheran's household. He would not have fulfilled his calling that Jesus himself laid on him. And he not have gone to Jerusalem. So Oswald Chambers wrote once, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. I'm sure there's a technical term in 
Probably half of you know it, I have no idea what it is. For somebody that wants to be hurt, that enjoys suffering. That means something's wrong. They're crazy. To choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. To choose, then he goes on, to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, we might add, as Paul did, whether it means suffering or not. So, Oswald Chambers. No, all of this, everything I've said, to get to this issue of our knowing God's will. And I'm about to share with you everything I know on the subject, which is Roman number three. The only way you will ever know God's will is by being willing to do it. You will not ever know God's will unless and until you're bent on Paul was sure of God's will. Now granted, he had a pretty dramatic conversion and a pretty dramatic calling. But he was committed to following, to, to following that call, to doing the will of God. You and I, on the other hand, seem to fall into two errors. Seems like we spend more time trying to know God's will than trying to do God's will. Augustine, and he's probably quoted every time anybody talks about knowing God's will and doing it, Augustine famously said, Love God and do what you will. Do what you want. Don't take that wrong. Understand what he's saying. You love God. You love God first. And if you love God, then do what you want. Why? Because if you love God, there's only one thing you want. That's to please Him. If you truly desire to do His will, if you truly desire to do His will, you will. And... And you know it in the doing. If you really desire to know God's will, you will probably find yourself doing that will. Now, practical, practical, practical stuff. But where do I begin? You know an awful lot of God's will. Start there. Ten Commandments. That'll keep you busy. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' words, love one another. And don't talk about wanting to know the will of God until you're willing to do that. And you've begun working on that. 
Second error we fall into, we speak too glibly of wanting to do God's will. What we usually mean by saying we want to find God's will, and we will never ever say this, I don't think. But what we mean is, so far as that will coincides or conforms to mine. I want to do God's will, I really do. As long as it, as long as it doesn't hurt, as long as there's not much pain involved. Not as much, you know, if, if, it, if it disrupts my lifestyle, my life, if it, it's, it's uncomfortable, if it costs, well then, I don't know. I don't know about this thing about wanting to do it. We pray, don't we? Your will be done on earth. What do you mean when you pray that? I mean, seriously, what do you mean? I, I've had to wrestle with this. What do I mean when I pray that? And I'll tell you what I mean. I mean, Lord, let them do your will. The president, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the governor, people in authority, the people in the Middle East, the people, you know, I, I've got a list. Yeah, let your will be done. How do you know they're not doing the past? The Middle East situation. You think that's not God's will? God has something for you. No, no, read it back. Two and a half pages in front of the Bible. Reach out. Read the prophecy of Habakkuk. And then look at the events in the Middle East. So who do you want to do God's will? You or them? It's them. The mind of Jesus, on the other hand, says, with Jesus in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will. We all too often mean not your will, but my will be done. Well, gotta close. For the hundredth time, I guess, in the last seventh year, seven years here, I will quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Taken from his little book, The Cost of Discipleship, which everyone I'm used to read at this point in your Christian life. Bonhoeffer wrote, When Jesus calls a man or woman, he bids him or her come and die. The Apostle Paul was willing to die for the name of Jesus. Are you? That's not a very good question.
For most guys, Hollywood's probably is a hypothetical question. Well, if you know, if it came to this, would you be willing to die for Jesus? That's not what I mean. My question is, will you die for Jesus? This is over. those things that are dearest to you in this life and in this world. Will you die to your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your plans, your Father, we fear to pray the words, break us, break our wills, that we may be yours. Lord, again, we ask for the mind of Jesus, the mind of Paul. Lord, that your will may be done in and through us. God, forgive us for putting our wills before yours. Our desires first. Lord, grant us grace to live before you as those bought the horrible price. Make us your servants. Make us the people you'd have us to be. Oh Lord, we tremble to say at whatever cost. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.